0: Hello Curious Minds, welcome to Mentorless Podcast, a show where I have in-depth conversations with visual storytellers about one particular project they completed. Together, we look at the creative and tactical steps they took from having an idea to releasing their finished project into the world. I'm your host, Nathalie Séjean. For this third episode, I talked with American filmmaker Brian Padayan. Together, we deconstruct and analyze how Brian went on making his first feature film shot on nothing less than Super 16, for $50,000. What makes this episode extra special is the intervention of magical thinking, this phenomenon that always occurs when you create and can prove at times to be your best friends or your worst enemy. As we cover all the technical and strategical decisions Brian took to make Black Sea, we also keep an eye on his magical thinking level each step of the way. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, just listen and you'll understand. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did and do stick until the end of the episode as i have a few announcements to make that might concern you see you on the other side brian thank you very much for being with us on the podcast happy to be here why don't you start with telling us where are you from and and if that's where you are actually and what's your job today what would you say is your job today
1: i'm in portland oregon in the United States, in the Pacific Northwest. I'm putting my second feature together right now as we speak, but I also have a day job, so I I work for the city city of Portland in kind of an administrative capacity.
0: Is this something you've been doing for many years?
1: Uh, Yes, I've been been working at the city for about 13 years. Oh,
0: wow. So when you did Black Sea, you were working, uh, you had a full-time job? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, I did.
0: So you are a filmmaker... By night, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: Okay. Can you walk walk us through the process of getting the idea for Black Sea and deciding that it was going to become a feature film?
1: Yes. So I went to film school in Los Angeles for screenwriting. And I was down there for many years writing spec scripts and trying to sell them. And, you know, I'd, I always wanted to be a director. That had always been my primary goal. I was just going to sell scripts as kind of an intermediary route to get there, which is kind of crazy looking back. The odds of that are very slender. And so my wife and I uh, got a little bit sick of Los Angeles, and we decided to move up here to Portland. And I kind of took it as time to start fresh and be like, I'm going to start directing. But I wanted an idea that was kind of um, relatively... Um, modest in terms of the narrative and, you know, easy to shoot. I was thinking of one location, dialogue-driven, a few characters. So my antenna was kind of up, and I was just trying to think of ideas. And we were up here in Portland, and we got invited to go one weekend to a beach house on the Oregon coast. And it was with one of my wife's colleagues and her husband and one of her husband's friends. These people we didn't really know very well. And so we were out there at the coast, and it was kind of stormy and dark. It was um, early fall, I think. And I just had this kind of idea like, oh, what if one of us wandered off that night and didn't come back? And so that was sort of the seed of the idea. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could shoot the whole thing in one location, maybe just over a few days, almost like a a filmed play. And it was going to be sort of a, I don't know, almost like an Agatha Christie thing where every person is sort of a suspect and you got an angry guy and you've got a... People with hidden motives and whatever, and so I was like, "Great, I'll do this." I'm, it's going to be my first movie. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's just going to be straightforward.
0: You went to film school where in LA?
1: I went to the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. Ah,
0: okay. Did you did you enjoy it?
1: Uh, you know, I did and I didn't. Like, I was exposed to a lot of different things, but um, it was it cost a lot of money, which I'm still kind of paying back. And part of me just wishes I would have just started directing instead of pursuing screenwriting, you know what I mean? But part of that's just being older, looking back, you know, I I don't know that I would have been successful at it starting that in my early 20s anyway. So I'm grateful for the experience, but I'm I'm kind of hot and cold about the whole thing.
0: How many years ago was it that you had the idea for Black Sea?
1: So I had the idea in the fall of 2004.
0: You had the idea in 2004 and you decided to just sit and write a draft?
1: Well, right. So I started writing the draft and then... Um, it was it was fine. You know, I think I did one full draft and, you know, it was kind of spare and whatever and not that exciting. But I was fine with it because it, it, it was just something I was going to try and throw together. And then in the middle of that process, we're, we're now like into later 2004, maybe in November, I started to have really bad headaches and I started a blurred vision in one eye. And to make a, kind of a long story, very short, it turns out I had a rare kind of brain tumor. And so I had to. I'd have a couple surgeries and I'd have some out of state radiation treatment and needless to say the project you know, kinda of went on indefinite hold because I, I just didn't have the the space to contemplate it. Yeah. But this was, you know, a strange gift in a way because it was it was off on the back burner, kind of meriting for a couple of years, and I, I emerged from that whole experience with a good prognosis and wanted to, you know, return to directing. But the thing is, when I returned to this script, which was already written, my, you know, my worldview had been altered a little bit by my experience, and so I didn't really want to pursue anything that was meaningless. Right. Originally, the idea was kind of meaningless. It was designed that way just to so I could shoot it quick and, and get it done and plant the flag in my first feature. But now I kind of got stuck in these corridors wanting it to, to mean something and trying to say something. So I already had this kind of template of this house and these five characters, and I kind of dove back into it and just started messing around with that. And I found that my experience with the brain tumor, it kind of filtered into everything, into my worldview, into the, just the way I would write a scene, the way I would, the way I would edit it, etc. And so it became kind of, like I said, an Agatha Christie type potboiler, started to morph into this more kind of abstract, slightly incoherent portrait of marriage and, and death and friendship. And that took me a long time to to write.
0: Do you remember how how long?
1: Uh, you know, several several years going back and forth. Uh, you know, it's tricky. Like I I didn't want to be identified by my brain tumor, right? I didn't want to be like, oh, I'm that guy with the brain tumor. So I didn't I didn't want to put it directly into the movie. I didn't want to have any. I didn't want it to be that kind of movie. But um, I had to wrestle with a lot narratively, like putting it in, taking it out. What does it mean if I put it in? What does it mean if I take it out? And after a while, what I ended up doing was just kind of going against all my training from in screenwriting. And I just followed what made sense to me. Watching the movie today, there's a lot of things that I would do differently. But when I I remember writing it, that I was following that, like this, this scene doesn't make sense or this, uh, everything they're talking about happened off screen. So the the audience isn't going to quite know what's going on. And I was like, that's okay. I'm going to, I'm just going to follow that because it, it felt right to me at the time. And so now we're getting into like 20, I don't know, 20, 2010 maybe, and I've 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 started directing short films to try try and get more you know just familiar with with doing it.
0: Up until that point, you had not directed short films,
1: right? So at AFI, I was in the screenwriting track. AFI was split into six different tracks. There was directing, producing, editing. Uh, production design, cinematography, and screenwriting, and so I was in the screenwriting track. So when you're in the screenwriting track, what you do is you write scripts. You learn about scripts, and you do all this thing. When if you're in the directing track, you direct. If you're a DP, you you, you follow that stuff. So there wasn't a lot of cross pollination in that, exa- uh, you know, in that sense. So I had been on lots of film sets and worked in the film industry, so I felt comfortable with it. But I didn't feel comfortable. I, I felt comfortable in the abstract, but in terms of being on a set and like talking to the crew, like it wasn't necessarily my skill set. So I said, you know what, I need to start directing some shorts. So I started to get some some shorts written and produced. And then I think it was around twenty twelve, it was, you know, it was time for me to make the Black Sea. I had to I had to start kicking it into gear somehow. And I didn't really know how. This was kind of before, you know, crowdsourcing was completely ubiquitous and everyone was doing it. It was kind of kind of like a newer thing, like, hey, I'm gonna try and raise money by crowdsourcing my film. And so I did it through this outfit called um, USA Projects. And we we raised $32,000. And then I got a grant from uh, an outfit here in Portland called the Regional Arts and Culture Council. And that was enough to at least get the production up and running.
0: When you were writing your your new version of Black Sea, did you have a group of friends with uh, whom you to whom you would send it, you know, for feedback? Were you producing as well? How did you budget the movie?
1: So, yes. Yeah, so my my first line of defense is always my wife. She reads my stuff and tells me when I'm right or wrong. And then in this case, we had some friends who lived nearby, Brian and Cheryl, and they read the script and they read a version with where I took the brain tumor out and they said, you have to put it back in. And I was very resistant. I was like, I don't know. I'm not putting this in. I don't want a brain tumor in this movie. I want it to just be informed by my experience, but I don't want my experience in there. And they were They were adamant about it. And I was equally adamant that I wasn't going to do it. And so o- over time, that kind of slow it slowly leached in. And I started to explore the possibility of like doing it. And then uh, again, over time with their kind of guidance on subsequent drafts, I, I began to kind of accept it and see that it was something that I, I had to put in, in a weird way. It became something that I had to uh, exorcise or, you know, uh, get out of my experience to help hit the reset button and just move on. And so that ended up in their thanks to them directly and to your other question in terms of budget like i didn't know like i don't i'm not also i'm not a producer type by um default you know what i mean like i i'm i'm very comfortable sitting in the dark writing or editing a little less so on set but i can do that but in terms of like glad-handing and shake, shaking people's hands and telling them about this great uh, opportunity and this awesome film. like That's not my my God-given gifts. So I didn't know quite what to do. And my director of photography, Scott Ballard, who had shot some short films with me, he kind of approached me and said, hey, you know, I'd be willing to help you co-produce this. So that was sort of the catalyst for getting this together. like Once I realized that I was going to have to produce this if it was going to get made. Because, you know, I'd spent most of my life, and this is part of being a screenwriter, you're waiting spending most of your life waiting for something to happen you're waiting for trucks of money to back up to your house or to be discovered or that whole thing so i i reached this point where i couldn't do it anymore to make this movie you know it was either going to have to get made because i would have to take some sort of action but i didn't know what action to take and when scott approached me and said look i want to help you produce this i was like fine i'll produce it scott will help me and that that was kind of the thing that that really got it up on its feet and moving and gave it like a pulse like this is an actual coming from a screenplay to actually this is going to be a movie.
0: When you first look at your feature and you were like okay let's make it, how much did you think you would need? Don't think about the knowledge you have today but rather because you said you raised thirty-two thousand dollars, which is actually quite a good amount, and you got a little grant. I don't know how much was the grant.
1: That was for five thousand.
0: So you had a little under forty k. Yes, that's
1: right.
0: But you also decided to shoot on Super 16 or sixteen millimeter.
1: On Super 16. Super
0: 16, and I did I did a short film on Super 16 actually, so I. I mean, I know the, I know the, I think we went through the same type of discoveries and, and that's, that's not a cheap choice. And in 2012, it's, I mean, it was right at the cusp when people were starting to shoot in DSLR but shooting on film was also something that was not as weird as today. Today, shooting on super Supercell is a very bold choice in a way. So how much did you think back then you would need to shoot the film? And at what point did you decide, let's shoot it
1: on film? You know, as you know, like the budgets can be very fluid and you know, they're just estimates for a while. And part of it hinges on casting and part of it hinges on locations and what you can get as in kind or donated. And I had never made a feature. So like they were just guesses, I thought, we would need around $75,000 to do it but like that was just Almost just plucked out of the air. Like I didn't really know. I hadn't spent a lot of time going over budgets or you know crunching numbers or things like that. For the film, I just knew that back in t- 2012 is when you started to hear a lot of like um, doom talk about how film is going away forever. And I had this just kind of almost ego driven thing like I wanted to direct a movie on film, you know. And part of that was just probably me being nostalgic into how I went to film school and everything. That that was just the mechanism you, or the apparatus was shooting on film. And so I was like, I've got to at least shoot a feature. On on film I, did, I mean i did shoot one of my short movies on super 16 kind of in prep for this and as it happens um my dp was also my producer so once we started going over the numbers and i was like scott i don't know if we can make this work on film because the the cost is it, w- it was starting to balloon up in terms of film stock and transporting it and transferring it all that stuff and and he was actually one of the defenders of it you know, which is not what you expect in producer, but he happened to be the DP as well. And he just said, you know, film is the right aesthetic for this movie, and we'll find a way to make it work, and we'll we'll reduce we'll have a lower shooting ratio and co- cost here. And so we were able to make it work that way. But shooting film was the primary cost in this movie, for sure. I would say probably uh, at least two thirds of it were related to the film costs.
0: So was this a, a film where nobody was paid, but you were paying the the film?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't pay myself. Um, so then we went to casting, and there were a couple people cast. Already who are my friends and i knew i could get them for pretty cheap but i didn't want people to work for free i wanted to pay everyone at least a little something but we ended up casting so there were six main parts and three of them were non-sag and three of them were sag uh screen actors guild so we we shot the movie under the sag ultra low budget contract the sag actors got i think a hundred dollars a day plus you know a little extra for pension or or health care or whatever the contract mandated and so i I paid the same to all the actors. And then the crew got like a lump sum, you know a, you know, a small sum. And then I think I had one or two PAs who helped out for a couple of days for free. Also, everyone signed contracts that when this movie hits the big time, you're all going to get a percentage. And this is, this is something I was, uh, when we were emailing initially, I told you there's this magical thinking that goes on with a movie, you know, which is kind of necessary to make it you know you kind of have to believe in it when no one else believes in it and but part of it was like when i had all these people sign this contract i was like this is you're going to get money soon and i really believed it it wasn't it wasn't bs but you know that hasn't come to bear yet for this project
0: so you managed to have 40k for your budget or you had more than that to start it
1: with? was it was roughly that so we had i raised 32k but they took their cut so i ended up getting $26,000 from them 5000 from for for a grant, and then we had a couple of credit cards for the film with a, a total of fifteen k for kind of contingency and emergencies, and we we spent all that pretty quickly. So I think it was about fifty thousand dollars for everything.
0: That's not much for a, a feature shot on Super Sixteen, huh?
1: That's that's correct, yeah.
0: Just out of curiosity, did you have rehearsal time before the shooting? Because what was your average takes for? The feature. Our
1: shooting ratio was about three to one or four to one. I mean, if you shot film, you know how it goes. And so we, we didn't have the luxury to just do take after take. But I felt like in a way that was kind of galvanizing and everyone on set knew it, that we only had a couple times to do it. And, and I feel like the actors would, you know, responded to that kind of energy. Like we, we have to do this in a, in a short amount of time. I feel like it ups everyone's game a little bit. So when we were out at the beach house, we had the, sh- the house that we were shooting in and then a house that cast and crew were staying in. And then another house that my wife and my mom and dad were staying in nearby, and my son, who was 18 months old at the time. And so the first beginning when we got out there, it was all night shoots. So what we would do, I would meet the cast who was going to be shooting that night in the house. And we would kind of go over the scene just in terms of blocking, sort of. And we would run through it a couple times. And if they had any questions whatever, we would kind of dig into that. So there was that, that degree of rehearsal, in, in a way, and then we would come back that night and shoot the scene. We didn't have any rehearsal time before the shoot, but we, we had like a table read where all everyone who was in the movie got to come together and ask questions then, too.
0: Over how many days did you shoot the, the full film?
1: So we shot it over 18 days. Um, nine of them were out of the coast, and then we had a one-day break, and then the remainder of the days were shot here in Portland. And the coast is probably about two hours away from Portland. So when we were out at the coast, we had to live out there for that time, and then we came here.
0: For you, in terms of preparation before before shooting, did you storyboard everything? Did you how did you work on your shooting list? Because I remember when I when I worked for my short film on film, our ratio was quite crazy. It was two to one actually, besides for two long takes. Wow! So I had to do you know everything had to work. Besides all the stuff that didn't work, <laughs> you know, like in advance I had everything mapped out, and then of course on set things change. But uh, how did you prep for this?
1: So yes, I, I did the same. I storyboarded the entire movie out, and. Part of that was for practical concern because we were shooting three to one. But part of it was also for me being on set, like to know what we're doing at any given time. Because I've found that when you're on set, you can be, your attention is pulled in a lot of different directions. And if you don't have that kind of spine to go back to, you can get lost real quick, or at least I can. Um, So that was kind of like a guide for me like you know the night before we'd shoot I could look at what I had storyboarded and be like oh yeah that okay this and you know you still have to be a little bit flexible of course because things change but I did storyboard the whole thing out I, I can't imagine not doing that.
0: When did you shoot? Was it in 2012 as well?
1: We shot in January of 2013.
0: Okay, beginning of 2013. So end of January, you were you had the movie in Cannes, basically, right?
1: Early February.
0: Early February. So at that point, what did you have in mind in terms of how long you have for post-production? Did you want to hit, I'm guessing, like every filmmaker that you wanted to hit Sundance for the next year or something like that? Or was your strategy trying to have the movie cut and... Send it to festivals?
1: Yeah. Um so that was kind of the plan. I don't know, again, like there's some magical thinking. I don't know what I thought looking back, but it just seemed like by virtue of having directed it, suddenly these doors would swing open and people around the world would be excited about it, be like, Oh, you just You just wrapped a feature, amazing, and that doesn't exactly that doesn't happen. Uh, You know, no one really cares. There's a million people who do that, and so that was kind of a hard lesson to learn. It sounds hilarious looking back, but like I, I really some degree of me thought that that like I I marshaled all my strength and moved heaven and earth and I made this this damn movie. But you know, it was still wasn't even edited. It was in rough rough form. You know, I hadn't even transferred any of the dailies or anything like that. So I had kind of a vague hope to like hit the October deadlines and get it to Sundance and Slamdance and you know the upper tier type festivals. But you know first I had to transfer the film and then I had to get it to my editor. My editor is Avon. Moritz, who lives in Los Angeles,
0: and you were doing the transfer in Los Angeles as well, or do the, you have no? The...
1: No, the transfer was in Seattle at a place called Alpha City, which has since gone out of business. So I transferred it and I got it to Amon. and you know that added a lag because I'm in Portland and she's in Los Angeles. And but we've worked together for many years, so we we have a good working flow. But it was. It was tough sometimes because i would just want to like into my office at night and cut the movie but i couldn't because she had it all so i sent it all to her i sent the script to her and she she started just assembling a rough cut and then so she would send me cuts back and forth or scenes rather at first and you know i'd say no this should be more like this or more like that now granted we we didn't have a ton of options because we shot three to one. Exactly. So that kind of helped, that, uh, that helped her in, in some ways because there wasn't much you could do. And I had to decide between, you know, a shot where it was slightly out of focus or a shot where the actor forgot the line, which one, you know, so that became an interesting kind of kind of enterprise. And so she sent those back and forth, the scenes, and then slowly it began to kind of assemble and became into a rough cut. And at the same time as this is happening, I'm working with a composer and he's sending me things back and forth. and Maybe I'll send him a scene back and forth. And then I'm also talking to my sound design guy who lives in a different state, who lives in Texas. And he happened to be the guy who did um, production sound for us too. Jordan, he's awesome. And so those things are all kind of happening, you know, remotely. I'm here in Portland, sound guys in Texas, the composers in South Carolina, and my editors in Los Angeles. So I'm kind of dealing with all of them. And then, as the cuts are getting a little more refined with Avon in L.A., I fly down there for a long weekend.
0: That was when? Around what time?
1: That that was in September, September of t- 2013. So, um, you know, it, it took a while, especially because we ran out of money, and so we're, you know, a lot of people at this stage. Avon uh, was working for severely reduced fee and we we ended up getting someone to donate an avid and she had the avid set up in her apartment for uh you know like a year and a half to work on this movie
0: when you say you run out of money is because the money you got how much of it did you have left for the post-production and when i say post-production i i mean also you know the daily the transfer and everything
1: i think we had about ten thousand dollars left on credit cards for all that and so I, and I I burned through all that pretty quickly
0: it's uh, actually one of the one of the lessons, the hard lessons I learned when I shot in film is that I asked Technicolor to you do a digital transfer for those who don't know, and then you can put it all back on film. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to do everything on film, so just do a standard definition transfer. But uh-huh. I never had the money to put it back on film, so I ended up shooting on Super 16 and having a standard definition movie at the end instead of an HD. And uh, that's was that was pretty heartbreaking. Did you Did you... Did you go back to film, or did you stay in no, HD?
1: Yeah. No, we just we just captured it in a film, and then it, it lives in digital.
0: And this was the plan from the get go, or did you just?
1: It, it was a, It just wasn't uh, financially feasible, yeah. and it was just. And um, it was also just you know with the the way theaters are around the world, like it's you know they're less and less equipped to like, oh, great, you've got a film print. It doesn't make as much sense. So it's to try and like be as accessible in terms of film festivals and all that stuff too.
0: In September, you went to LA to see the first rough cut. Is that correct?
1: Well, yeah, I had seen it, but we, so we went to work together. So like a, a, my editor had been working on her own and sending me drafts and, you know, we talk every once in a while, but like we, we hadn't been in the same room. So it was to be down there for, I, I think it was for four days and we just worked kind of around the clock uh, because she had the Avid in her apartment and you know we would take a break to go grab a beer go eat dinner and then we'd come right back and just edit some more stuff and so i came away from that weekend with i don't i can't remember if we had picture lock or not but we were pretty close and so after we had picture lock then i worked a little more directly with the composer and um, the sound designer to finalize that stuff
0: did you hit the october deadline you had in mind
1: so i did I think I submitted to both, but, you know, it was still in rough cut form. It wasn't color corrected. It was a rough sound mix. I, th- I think it was probably picture locked. And then, again, there comes the magical thinking where, like, it's rough cut, but it's this movie is genius and people are going to freak out. <laughs> you know, and then...
0: I mean, it, it's good because usually the post-production is the moment where I start feeling heartbroken. So during nine months, you still had this faith about the film or, like, this was during the, the editing and everything, you were...
1: Well, well, yeah, I mean, I should be honest here that it, it went back and forth. Like I had a love hate relationship with it because you're starting to see footage back and like, oh, that doesn't look exactly like what I wanted. Or I'm the director. Why didn't I fight for another take of that? Or what, you know, or or whatever. You're, you're seeing flaws that no one else is really seeing. And the flip of that is sometimes true where you get high on your own supply and you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And so I was kind of walking that that line day by day sometimes like I would see something and just be horribly depressed and then I'd rewatch it the next night with a different cut of it and be like oh gosh what am I talking about this is great and so it it wasn't like it was a smooth sailing post-production like it was very kind of bumpy emotionally. And but but by the time we got to picture lock, it was where you kind of make peace with certain things. You're like, okay, this when we rack focus, there it's slightly out of focus, but this scene is fine, and no one else is going to notice, and this, and so you make all these sort of kind of internal compromises, and then you're like, okay, this is the movie, this is what it is, and so picture lock was kind of the jumping off point to move into the rest of the posts for the the audio stuff. But we submitted picture lock rough cut for some of the bigger festivals and like i said you know you submit it and you expect that afternoon to get a phone call and like you know months go by and then you get like a very kind of standard issue dear filmmaker response
0: this year we've received five thousand 000 submissions <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> right That's right. the uh, quality was so high this year please this doesn't reflect <laughs> on the quality of your work at all exactly it just didn't fit with our program
0: they're all copy pasting it i think yeah
1: yeah so i just um i still just you know kept pursuing i i would take those rejections as they came in and just kind of keep pursuing finishing the film and so i worked with the composer we got all that stuff in my sound guy was in texas as i said and so i ended up flying down there to do the final sound mix with him and then um the last step was color correction which was done at light press in seattle and then it was done
0: yeah you 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 got actually in uh, I mean yeah you didn't get into Sundance few people do so it's fine but you get into a good number of I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. But on the, let's say, on on the paper, you you still have a good list of film festivals you got into. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you work on finding festivals, applying to festivals, getting fees for festivals? And um, once you got into some of the festivals, did you attend them? Can you tell us a little bit about this period of time?
1: That part is one thing I, I would go back and if I could talk to myself, I'd just be like budgeting the the money and like the emotional space for applying to film festivals because um there again with magical thinking you think the doors are just going to open and people are going to send you waivers and say we got to have your film this thing and that it just didn't come to bear and so it takes a lot of focus to kind of come up with a strategy at first my strategy was just like well i'll get into these top tier festivals and then i'll blow up and then the rest will take care of itself and when that didn't happen i didn't really have a plan and so Eventually, I kind of honed in on, you know, this movie is shot in Oregon, and it's kind of, you know, it's the milieu is kind of the Pacific Northwest and kind of has that vibe. And so I thought... I'm going to just kind of target smaller festivals in the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast. And that ended up being most of, mostly where we played. We got into the Portland Film Festival and the Seattle True Independent Film Festival, or the Seattle Transmedia Independent Festival, I think they've renamed themselves. And we played at the SoCal Film Festival and the Boise Film Festival and the Columbia Gorge Festival. And all, I mean, all very respectable festivals, but not like the the top not the Tribeca's of the world or the Sundance's of the world. And so from where I could, I would go attend in Portland. Obviously I did in Columbia Gorge, which is near here. I think I went to every, every one, you know, we also got, we got into one in Spain called the Marbella one, but, so we got accepted, but we didn't, play which is which is a strange kind of arrangement but uh that happened with one in chicago as well too where like you're we're accepted and given the use to put laurels and say we're an official selection but it didn't play
0: oh that's interesting i didn't even know this was uh, something that happened
1: well n- neither did i
0: okay <laughs> and so the, the festivals where you went did you find it Interesting, useful in terms of uh, networking or not? I have I've had very different experiences on festivals. I mean, it can be heartbreaking. I don't know why I tend to go to the depressing aspect of things. So uh, maybe you'll have a, a, a happier story. I don't know. It's just filmmaking is so much online is so much about the success stories, and and the reality is much harder sometimes. So I would be interested in, in hearing your stories about attending festivals.
1: Sure. So out of all of them, probably the the top experience me was here at the portland film festival i mean i'm from portland as are a lot of the cast and crew so um that's i guess no surprise but um we played two nights and both shows were sold out and it was just very energetic and felt very awesome it was like very validating but a lot of the other festivals were the polar opposite of that where like you you don't quite know what to expect and then especially if you travel for a film festival you're like oh my god this is so exciting i'm I'm going to another state for my film festival and like i'm gonna this is i'm gonna be the toast of this interstate thing and then you go in and like uh in one it wasn't even like a theater it was like this art gallery which had like a little screen on the wall and there were like you know 10 folding chairs set up and only only five of them were filled and one of them was with the guy who owned the art gallery (laughs) And like, so I had to stand there, you know, and it was at 10 in the morning and like, you know, it was just not something that I had pictured. And so you're standing there watching your movie and it's something you kind of have to reconcile with. Like, well, wow, this is not what I, you know, when I set out to be a filmmaker, set out to make this movie, it took me 10 years to make it. This wasn't the audience I envisioned. And yet at the same time, you know, you that this is your movie you have to own it and you get up at the end and there's four people there and you say do you have any questions and some of them do and you answer them to the the best you can like uh that, so that was kind of a learning thing for me like how i felt about the movie shouldn't be fluid you know that's the thing that's fixed the audiences are fluid some of them are going to be big and celebratory but some of them are going to be different for this movie in particular which is Kind of um, not an easy pill to swallow for a lot of audiences because uh, there's five different points of view and it's non-linear and some of it's abstract and atmospheric. Sometimes I'm just met with kind of a blank stare, like what did, what did the end mean? Other times people are are a little more engaged. So that was a learning thing too for me, just kind of like eventually surfing on top of all that and. You know, it's your film, you take it personally, and I had to learn to kind of not take any of it personally, whether there's two people in the room or 200 or whether it's in a tiny art gallery at 10 in the morning and light is bleeding in through all the windows, or whether it's, you know, your optimum theater, that that was a bit of a learning curve because there were, there were several kind of depressing type venues where I was like, oh my God, I, I put, you know, a plane flight on the credit card that I can't afford. I'm away from my family this weekend to come to this, you know, to this room of four people. So it's, it's not always glitz and glamour. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, what I'm wondering is how long... Did this distribution and applying to festival period last?
1: So we started, you know, I had applied in Rough Cut to several festivals and didn't get into any of them. And this is like 2013 now, or 2014 rather. And our first festival we played at was in, in May of 2015. Then that was the Seattle Transmedia and Independent Festival. We We played at all those festivals that year in 2015. I continued to... Um, submit into 2016. I think we played once, yeah, we played in February of 2016 and I think that was our last festival. So, I don't know, it, the, it's, it's, it start the interest starts to kind of wane or trickle down. So I guess there's no, no set beginning or ending time, but it became apparent that, like, I was just getting rejection after rejection after a while and, you know, you have your own relationship with your movie, too, and, like, part of me was like, I'm, I'm kind of ready to be done with this movie you know I'm I'm ready to kind of walk away and move on to the next thing and I think I said in an email with you it's sort of like a family member that you 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 love but it might have its flaws and like you don't necessarily want to spend the rest of your life in a room with your uncle or whomever it might be you know you need some you need some space and so I was starting to feel like that by the end of the festival run like I I need to kind of move on and start doing my next thing.
0: Yeah, actually, one of the things you said in the email, one of the things you sent me that I I absolutely loved is you said, realize that you are the only person to carry this movie. Yes, film is collaborative. Yes, you can't make the movie yourself, but your collaborators on set aren't the ones who seven months later will not be sleeping due to the vagaries of the sound mix. And uh, I think that... uh, That's also very interesting when you end up like many indie filmmakers producing your own film and writing your own film, which is like you're really on the ride from A to Z and through every little steps while others are coming and going. I mean, I'm guessing your co-producer since he was a DP and he didn't write the screenplay, of course, maybe did you split the work for the distribution or were you mainly the one who handled that part?
1: No, I mainly handled it. So he was like my co-producer during most of the production and he was a voice sort of in post, but he's a DP and he's also a director and he makes his own movie so he's a very busy person and like he kind of moved on to his other things like i mean he was av- available to me but like it was it was me you know and it was my movie
0: i don't know usa project i don't know how they how they work in terms of uh, crowdsourcing but did you have this perks system and did you have this online audience or supporters you kept in touch with during the whole process?
1: Yes, yeah, so like everyone who donates get goes onto a list. And so that I have a big email list of supporters. And like I, I tried to every time there was some sort of news or success with the film to keep them apprised. We're playing here. Um, we're playing at this festival, um, you know, because it wasn't always festivals. Sometimes there were screenings like we had, we had a screening in May and another one in August here in town. So I would send emails and I, I still do. And so I have, I have that kind of list of people to keep engaged, hopefully, or at least, you know, some sort of newsletter what's going on with the movie that you helped make.
0: I haven't run a crowdfunding campaign myself yet, so I always wonder, is it comforting or is it taxing or maybe both to have this extra work to do kind of while you're uh, handling a project over several years? Oh,
1: I I found it very taxing and unpleasant because, yeah, I mean, it, it just takes a lot of work and focus. And that's another thing. If I could go back, I'd tell myself to just kind of delegate some of that or don't don't start until there's someone dedicated who can help you with it because doing it all yourself is just, it's a long, hard slog because as you know, it's not like you, all these things are divided into neat little boxes. Like at the same time you're working on the script, you're trying to run this crowdsourcing thing. And at the same time you're taking phone calls from vendors who want to help transfer your film or whatever. So it's all happening at once. The lines are really like not very well defined and that can just get exhausting. You're pulled in a lot of different directions and you have to put on kind of a different sort of, had to be a crowdsourcer or a producer than you have to do to be the you know the screenwriter or the director
0: so I know you of course you didn't recoup but nobody does so that's uh, you know that's no surprise I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, still, I'm still waiting to hear the story of someone who recouped besides uh, Rodriguez and what's interesting to me that I also know that right now you are working on your new feature
1: film yes
0: when did you have the idea for the screenplay where are you at right now and when did you decide to go for it
1: this one came about like in a different way than other other projects like um this this movie is called sister brother and it came about because the actor aaron Mcgarry, who stars in the black sea as charlotte she and i wanted to work together again and we met and just We started just talking about movies that we loved because I didn't have anything ready to go. I just knew that I wanted to do something, but I wasn't sure what. And so we kind of met and just talked about kinds of movies that we both loved or responded to or things about them. And so what I, I did is I kind of took a bunch of those movies and kind of distilled them down to certain like, plot constraints. Like we talked about the movie Big Night, which is about, you know, centers around a meal. And we're both big fans of like the Richard Linklater Before Sunrise series, which are very dialogue driven. And I'm a big fan of Wild Strawberries, Bergman and it has a road trip in it and after hours by Scorsese which is you know set over a constrained amount of time or compressed amount of time so I kind of like took all those things and went away and I knew I wanted to work with Aaron again and there's another guy named Todd who's uh, a theater actor here in Portland and I wanted to work with him again but I didn't quite know anything yet and all those elements were kind of together in my mind and what came out was this um this road trip that a a brother and sister take from Portland to Seattle so she can go to a dinner that's hosted by her old high school boyfriend who lives in Seattle now. And so where we're at, we're... um we're about to start finding the budget for it. The script is written. I've applied for a few different grants for it. We're shortlisted for um, the Sundance Screenwriters Lab in 2018, and we're a finalist for the Movie Maker Magazine Production Services grant. I've just shot a fundraising trailer, which hopefully will be online soon. And Scott, who's my old colleague, my old cohort and co-producer from Black Sea, he's going to shoot it for me. And my friend Dave Marion, who I've known for many years and was first AD on the Black Sea, he's going to produce it for me. So I've got the two leads attached and a producer and a DP, and now we just have to find the money. So
0: you won't produce?
1: Uh, I'm gonna be probably default co-producing. I mean, or at least at this stage, I am. I'm you know I'm the one applying for grants. I'm the one like reaching out, trying to make some things happen at this stage. And Dave's in LA, and I'm up here, so there's different ends of the pool that we're working on.
0: And what are you planning to shoot on this time?
1: This time we're gonna shoot on area Alexa because Scott has one, so it makes it easy. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not opposed to shooting on film again in in the abstract. You know, and if we if we're able to find the money for it, I would certainly consider it. But like a, a percentage of this movie is going to be shot like on a camera car, you know, with the two, with the brother, brother and sister driving. And like, I just don't, you know, we, we burn through so much film sometimes just on shots where like uh the camera was far away or was going to tilt down and we had to turn the camera on. And then, you know, we used 1% of what we shot and threw away 90% of it because it wasn't, you know, just I can just imagine that happening really quickly on a camera car with 16 millimeter cameras. So just for the sake of the budget and the sake of, Perhaps like my sanity and the actors being able to just do another take or they flub a line or have have a little less pressure in that regard, I think it, it would be a better option.
0: So I love the fact that despite the many obstacles and the hardship of making a feature film, <laughs> your first reaction is to just work on the second one almost right after, because at the end of the day, you stopped promoting Black Sea pretty recently and you're already on the move for your next one. What are the what are the things you keep in mind for the, the next feature?
1: I, I mean, I would... Um I just would qualify that, though. It, I mean, it, it probably seems like it happened in short order, but, like, there was, you know, it took a while for this Sister Brother, for the script to kind of reveal itself to me. It took a couple of years for me to write it, and it's only right now that it's kind of getting some life. And it's also misleading for me to imply that like after I made Black Sea and everything was great and I jumped into this thing, like there are just periods of intense depression about the Black Sea, not achieving the way I had envisioned in my magical thinking mind or not finding the audience or or me not getting recognized in the way that my, my poor ego had envisioned me, right? So, you know, it's, that's, I mean, part of it's just, that's how it works. You apply to film festivals, you're not going to get into them all. We applied to, I think, 95 festivals and I got into 11, I think. Something like that. And so every one of those, you know, rejections piles up and there is a period where, you know, like I said at the beginning, like I have a day job, too. I have a family. I started to have a lot of doubts like wouldn't it be a lot easier if I just didn't do this you know wouldn't wouldn't my life be just maybe a little bit more enjoyable and like I I didn't have to worry about this and I didn't have to lay awake and I didn't have to like test myself or push myself and you know I had I had a, a week or two there where I was like yeah you know what like why why don't screw this like why don't I just not do this and I and I really meant it at the time because it was just I had put all this time a decade of my life into this thing that was very meaningful to me and very personal to me and the net result it it, sh- it showed in you know some festivals but as I said earlier one of those festivals was a tiny room with sun pouring in at 10 in the morning I mean am I gonna do that again is that really something I want to do again that's insane so it was a back and forth thing to get me to this next movie it wasn't like I it was set in stone and I'm like I know what I'm doing next and I'm gonna hop over here and I'm just like fully functioning filmmaker there's some definite zones of depression that I had to kind of just wait out and experience. And at the end of all that, you know, when I met with Aaron and we talked and like once, once I finally got the the idea and once I finally saw how I could do it, that was like the moment where I was like, oh, I could I, I could make this. But it, you know, it took me years to get there from making the Black Sea to that. And, and once I, I hit that moment, that sort of reinvigorated me. In a way, once I realized how to do it, and then once I realized that I've already made my first feature film. So like that's out of the way. And I can take a lot of things that I learned from that experience and use it in this one and so in that sense it said it's like growing more positive by the day right or by the hour the more comfortable i feel with the screenplay and how i'm going to shoot it and how we're going to do this and how we're going to do posts and what we're going to do about this and like the more that i can see it it becomes a more palatable tangible thing it makes complete
0: sense i i i really love your honesty because i, I feel this is what a lot of us are living through and actually in the other interviews I'm having it's often just a normal dance we have between you have to dream a little bit you have to feel creative and sometimes you just need to accept that it's it's very hard but you you just keep on moving i'm very grateful you you shared your story i will share all the links about the movie uh, you have a website for black sea if people want to yeah. see the, the the trailer is there anywhere where they can actually watch it online right
1: now? um so fi- uh, finally after years we're about to have our dvds you asked earlier about like crowdsourcing and like you have incentives to get people like it was like four or five years ago people signed up for a dvd like where we almost have those once i get those to my people i'm gonna put the movie online for, you know, a nominal fee for a few bucks. You can watch it on Vimeo or something. Uh, so, the, so that's coming soon. That'll all be posted through my website for the movie.
0: Thank you very much, Brian, for your time and for sharing your story and uh, best of luck for your next film and uh, we'll make sure to keep people updated on uh, how it's going, actually.
1: Thank you so much.
0: This episode was produced and edited by me, Nathalie Sejean, The music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. You can discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash soul of bear. Before you leave, I have a couple of announcements to make that might concern you. If you have a story about a creative project that taught you a lot and you'd like to share go to mentorless.com podcast and at the end of the page there is a form you can fill up to submit your story if you have follow-up questions for my guests please send them my way if while you were listening to adam lynn or brian's story you felt there's a questions i forgot to ask email me at natalie n-a-t-h-a-l-i-e at mentorless.com with the subject line, follow-up. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere you go to listen to podcasts. If you'd like to spread the love, consider taking a few minutes to rate the show and share it with your friends. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do a one-time donation or become a monthly patron. Just go on mentorless.com slash podcast and you will find out all the relevant links to do either or. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. I'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.